Hebrews chapter number 12. And let's do this. Let's begin uh, the reading in verse number uh, 24. Verse number 24. And so if you would stand for the reading of God's Word this evening, if you're able to do that. Hebrews chapter 12, and verse 24, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. It says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not uh, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him uh, that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I uh, shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And the Bible study this evening is, Jesus' kingdom is better than Moses' kingdom. And we began that last week. We'll uh, conclude that uh, thought this week. Let's pray. Lord, help the uh, Bible study uh, to make sense as we do our best to take your word and explain it. Uh, Lord, um, give me wisdom and uh, conciseness of tongue. And Lord, uh, for the listeners this evening, may they be engaged. No doubt many people here, their minds are frazzled and wearied. Uh, many folks stayed up last night to watch election coverage and maybe got a little less sleep tonight, or a uh, little less sleep last night, and their body is wearied. And Lord, we pray, praise you that they're here. Uh, but Lord, whatever the reason would be, help us all to focus in. And Lord, we look forward to the day we get to sit in heaven and hear you exergete the scriptures and explain and teach, and it's going to be great. But Lord, now, tonight, use my feeble tongue and help us to do our best to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And so, again, quickly to recap, uh, for those of you who were here last week, this will be uh, repetitive. For those of you that weren't, or maybe you just forgot because you have a short memory, amen, uh, this will be helpful to you. And so, um, the book of Hebrews was written to the Jewish Christians to help them understand and remind them that everything in the Old Testament was a shadow to Christ. And the Jews had gotten in the habit of worshiping the shadow. All right, Imagine that you have a bright light shining down on the cross, and uh, that bright light that hits the cross creates the shadow behind the cross in the spectrum of time. And so the Old Testament is filled with types. I heard one person put it this way, the Old Testament is the slides, the New Testament is the slide projector. The Old Testament are the slides, the New Testament is the slide projector. You ever get the, the, you ever get the little toy when you were a kid? I don't think they have these anymore, but you stick the little circular disc down and you look through and you pull the lever on the side and you use the daylight, right? And uh, Have you ever had one of those discs without the, the um, contraption? You put it in and you hold it up to the sun and uh, to the light and you try to see what that is. And the Old Testament, it, it, there are all sorts 
sorts and types of Jesus Christ, but then you take the Old Testament and you lay it up against the New Testament and you see all of those sacrifices in Leviticus and the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy and uh, all that the prophets prophesied and uh, all that was laid out by the kings and the messianic psalms and uh, even going back into the Garden of Eden with all of the types there... All of that was nothing more than slides that go in the slide projector of the New Testament and show us Christ. And maybe there isn't a better book in the New Testament to do that than the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews quotes over and over and over again the Old Testament in the New Testament within the context of the life of Christ. Of the life of Christ. So that is the the backdrop of the book. Now what is the backdrop of of this chapter, alright? We've been told from chapter 1 up through chapter number, uh, at the end of chapter number 10, Jesus is better than this. And Jesus is better than that. And uh, this part of Judaism, Jesus is better than that. And that part of Judaism, and listen, Jesus is the completion of the priesthood. His blood was the final sacrifice to be shed. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abel. And He's greater than Abraham, and he's greater than Enoch. And then you get to chapter 11, and what do we see? We see that all of the people in chapter number 11 were not great because of who they were. They were great because of who they believed in. Who did they believe in? They believed in the Messiah. They believed in Jesus. And so even the heroes of the Old Testament that you make such a big deal out of, the only reason why they're great is because they believed in a coming Messiah. Their attention was on the Messiah. If their attention was on the Messiah, then Jew, your attention also needs to be on the Messiah. And then we get to chapter number 12. And chapter 12 opens uh, with uh, a, a... an exhortation that we run our race, that we set aside the weights and the sins, and we run with patience. And uh, then it transitions into how we run with patience. We run our race by living a disciplined life. And if we're going to be disciplined runners, then we must face discipline by God in order to be disciplined runners in the spiritual race. And so then a whole section is laid out on God disciplining His children and the responses to that discipline. You have those uh, that respond well, and then you have those like Esau who did not respond well, and that root of bitterness springs up and defiles them, and they become fornicators, and even though they repent, they can't find that repentance with tears because they've pushed things too far. Their rebellion has forfeited some things for them. And then, off the heels of that, we come to the passage we're studying tonight. All right. So the passage that we're studying tonight, we began last week, we're continuing this week, is this idea that, hey, uh, the kingdom of Moses is represented by a mountain. And that mountain is called Hebron or Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, we find the Israelites making their way to Mount Sinai. By the way, Mount Sinai is the place where while uh, Moses was working for his father-in-law, he was tending to his sheep and he looked and he saw a bush that was burning but not consumed. That bush was on Mount Sinai. and He walked over to the bush and he was told to remove his uh, shoes because he was on 
holy ground. That Mount Sinai is a very, very special location, and it's still there today. And uh, there, the the top of the mountain is still blackened uh, today, and there's still a cave there where Elijah would later go and hide out. And uh, there's still the altar there where they put the golden calf, and uh, there's still a mass burial ground just uh, a, a little ways away, and there's still a place where the 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 uh, the, the offerings were had and the animals were offered up to the Lord in order for there to be penance made for their sin. That location is still there. But that location, what it represents is the kingdom that God used Moses to begin. The earthly kingdom that God used Moses to begin with the Israelites. It was at that mount. Mount Sinai where the law was given. It was at that mount where the Israelites would get their civil law, their moral law, their dietary laws. All that would be laid out to Moses there on Mount Sinai. And so Mount Sinai represents the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. The Mount Sion represents the New Testament, the New Covenant, and that is located in heaven. So Sinai is located in earth, and that was the first thing we looked at. And Mount Sion, S-I-O-N, is uh, represented or is found in heaven. Uh, look down with me at uh, verse number 22 of our text tonight. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 22. It says, But ye are come unto Mount Sion, Mount Sion, and unto the uh, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and uh, church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and uh, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. And so where is this located? This Mount Sion is not found on earth. This Mount Sion is located in heaven. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3, and we saw that Mount Sion is located in heaven. And so um, Jesus' kingdom is represented by Mount Sion. Uh, Moses' kingdom is represented by Mount Sinai. And then we looked at a comparison uh, between Moses and Jesus. And then we moved on and we looked at a comparison of the blood of animals that was shed there by Mount Sinai versus the blood of Jesus, which is sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven by Mount Sion. And we took the time to look at that without rehashing, uh, just, uh, just explaining and reviewing. The last thing we covered last week was law versus grace. And I want to take just a moment here and set the table for the rest of the Bible study here. Mount Sinai represented the law. You remember the story? Moses goes up into the mount there and he meets with God and and God gives him the Ten Commandments. In fact, God would etch them on stone. The, the, the first Ten Commandments, he would etch them in stone himself, and he would give them to Moses, and then God would tell Moses, get back down to the camp, because the people are behaving in a way that's wicked. And so he'd come down halfway down the mount, and who did he meet other than Joshua? And Joshua says, there is the sound of war in the camp. Now, they're so high up, They don't know what's going on down there. And Moses looks back at Joshua and says, that's not the sound of war. That is the sound of music. Those people are worshiping a false god and making our god very angry. They get down to the base of the mountain and Moses looks out and what does he see? He sees the people, they're dancing in a lewd manner. 
to music that sound, would sound like a modern-day uh, heavy metal rock and roll. Around a golden calf, they had picked up this idolatrous golden calf from their time in Egypt. And Moses loses his temper, and he breaks the Ten Commandments. And then he takes the golden calf, and he grounds it into dust, and he puts it in the river, and he makes them drink their golden calf. And then what does he do? He then takes the tabernacle, and he casts it outside of the people. And there he gets on his face before God, and he begs God to forgive them. He even says to God, blot out my name. I will go to hell for them, but do not let your presence depart from these people. And God is so moved by Moses' prayer, the Bible says that God repented of the evil he thought to do unto Israel. He changed his mind. Moses' prayer changed the mind of God. And then Moses would go back up into the mount. But this time, he'd have to etch out the commandments with his own two hands. God wasn't going to do it for him this time. God said, in your anger, you broke those. You shouldn't have done that. Now you get to take the time to carve them in stone. And so he did that. Mount Sinai represents the law. Here's the truth. The first time Moses was given the law, while he was getting the law, the people were at the base of the mountain breaking the law. They were breaking the law in a way that was ugly. They were breaking the law in a way that was very obvious and uh, very shaking their fist in uh, the face of God. But can I tell you something? The second time when Moses came down off the mountain, they weren't doing that. But can I tell you, those people broke the law every single day afterwards. The law is not uh, flawed. We are flawed. You with me? And the law is not there for me to look at you and say, you do a job, better job of keeping the law than me, so that must mean that you're going to get into heaven and I'm not. No, the law is there to say, we all fall short. You know what uh, the, the Mount Sion represents? It represents grace. Now, it doesn't do away with the law. It completes the law. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, He said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and he does that with grace. He does that with grace. I gave you this quote last week. Grace requests a much higher standard than the law requires. What do I mean by that? Because we're not being threatened at every turn, God expects a higher standard. With the law, watch this now, with the law, the standard wasn't as high but the threat was more imminent. A woman is caught in adultery. We looked at this on Sunday morning in John chapter 8. A woman is caught in adultery. She's to be stoned on the outskirts of town. In the New Testament, under grace, a woman caught in adultery, is she to be stoned? No. No. What do we call that? We call that grace. We call that a, a, a wiggle room. Now, that doesn't mean God condones it. But that does mean God gives us room to grow. Aren't you glad that we're not held to the standard, or rather to the consequences, of the Old Testament law? Aren't you glad? Because I'll tell you right now, I would have been dead like 30 times over again. Right? If I would have been held to that. Instead, grace comes along and does not threaten to kill us. No, grace gives us room, but the standard of righteousness, the standard, the expectation gets raised. It gets raised. So in the Old Testament, 
we pay the tithe. In the New Testament, God says, give according to how much God's grace has touched your heart. And as we grow in grace, we grow in our giving. In the Old Testament, they were commanded to bring a sacrifice. Uh, and, and that sacrifice was in the form of an animal. In the New Testament, we don't bring an animal sacrifice. No, our flesh is the sacrifice. You see how grace requests a higher standard than the law requires? In the Old Testament, they went to the tabernacle or temple to visit with God. Uh, that was the law. In the New Testament, we are the temple. We are the temple. You see here again, uh, grace has raised the standard where the law uh, from where the law was. And God just expects a little bit more. We looked at Romans chapter 6 where uh, Paul said to the church of Rome, he said, uh, uh, are we going to take advantage of grace? Uh, uh, what? Uh, are we going to sin in the face of grace? Oh, we should not do that. We should not do that. And so law versus grace. With that as the background, let's jump into the last uh, two thoughts this evening on the back of your uh, bulletin there. And uh, let's, uh, let's finish looking at uh, Hebrews here, and uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and let's let the Bible do the teaching for us tonight. Notice next, earth shaken versus heaven and earth shaken. Earth shaken Versus heaven and earth shaken. And again, this is a comparison of Moses' kingdom represented by Mount Sinai to Jesus' kingdom represented by heaven and earth. And so uh, look with me at verse number 18. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 18. It says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkest, darkness and tempest. Last week when we uh, read Exodus 19, uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 10 through 25, uh, we saw that uh, the Lord came down in a dark cloud and there was a shaking of the earth, an earthquake experience when God spoke. I'm sure that was powerful. I'm sure that was tremendous. I'm sure that was awesome, uh, but what do we know? We know that it scared the people out of their mind. Look down at verse number 21. Verse number 21 said, And so terrible, speaking of the Sinai experience, was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Even Moses the leader was left in some sort of trauma from God coming down and in that ferocious, omnipotent way, revealing His power to the Israelites. The earth was shaken when the law was given. How about Mount Sion? How about Mount Sion? Look at verse number 26. Again, notice that 18 down through verse number 21 speak of Mount Sinai. 22 through 28 speak of Mount Sion, all right? Look at verse number 26. Notice there it says, Whose voice then shook the earth, speaking of God at, at Sinai, but now he hath promised, saying, yet, only, uh, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken 
may remain. What is this talking about? God is not only going to shake the earth. And by the way, when the earth was shaken, it was just one location around Sinai. God is not just going to shake one mountain uh, or a, a region around one mountain. God is going to shake the entire heaven and the entire earth with His voice. What is that talking about? I'll tell you uh, what I believe it's talking about. Turn over to Second Peter chapter number three. Second Peter chapter number three. That'd be to the right there. Hebrews, James, First Peter, Second Peter, Second Peter chapter three. And look at verse number 10. One day, uh, God is going to destroy this heaven and this earth. Now, there are theologians who believe that 2 Peter 3, uh, 10 through 14, are, um, uh, are not to be taken literal. But I'll just tell you this, as a student of the Bible myself, I default at taking the Bible literal unless it is very obvious or made clear by God himself that we're not to take it literal. And so, like, when I read through Revelation, I'm not trying to read between the lines or try to read into and say, well, is John describing some sort of technology here? Um, uh, there may be some room for that in Revelation. My default is, if he's talking about uh, demon locusts coming out of the pit of hell, he's not talking about Apache helicopters. He's talking about demon locusts coming out of the pit of hell. All right, my default is to just trust the Bible for what it says. And listen, if we get to heaven and, and find out that, you know, that, that was wrong, okay. The Lord will be, let God be true and every man a liar, right? Uh, we'll find that out at that time. I don't believe Second Peter 3 is speaking metaphorically or uh, in, in some sort of uh, vague uh, terms that are not to be taken literally. Here's what I believe is going to happen. Let's look at the passage. 2 Peter 3, 10-14. Keep in mind what we read about God's voice shaking the heaven and the earth. The Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, uh, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? There's the spiritual application. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. One day, the Lord is going to stand on Mount Sion, and he is going to open his mouth, and he is going to utter such a sound that the heaven and earth will shake and will be dissolved with a fervent heat. You see, on Mount Sinai, a region around a mountain or earth was shaken. From Mount Sion, the Lord will open His mouth and all of this heaven and earth will be destroyed. And then a new heaven and earth will be presented to us that will live on forever. And by the way, this isn't in my notes, nor is it in Hebrews, but I think it's, a, I think it's something that we should point out here. Um, we don't have a lot of description of the new heaven and the new earth. We're given the description of the new Jerusalem, 
and that's it. That's one city. And that's all the description we get of the, all of the new heaven and the new earth. Folks, it's going to be an amazing experience. It's going to be an amazing experience. Think of it this way, alright? Right now we have earth and we have heaven where the Lord resides and the angels reside, right? And where the saints are, where Mount Sion is. And on earth we have the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the city of Jerusalem makes up one small portion of earth and heaven. And so if that scenario was still to be true in the new heaven and the new earth, that one Jerusalem is going to make up just a small portion of the rest, and we have no description in Scripture of the rest of it. Boy, God's going to destroy this heaven and this earth, and He's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, Pastor, what will survive when God opens His mouth? What will survive? Turn over to John chapter 10 and verse number 28. John chapter 10 and verse number 28. Once God stands on Mount uh, Sion and opens His mouth, and the heaven and the earth are shaken and, and caught on fire and destroyed, just a couple of things will survive. Look at John chapter 10 and verse number 28. These aren't on your notes or on the screen. These are just a couple of things I scribbled down in my notes here. But uh, I have this written down. The children of God will survive. Amen? Children of God will survive. Look at John chapter 10, verse number 28. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Where will we be when the heaven and earth is being destroyed? In the hand of God. We're not going to be destroyed. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Now, if you're watching online, I believe everyone in the room is saved, or at least has professed to me that they're saved. But if you're watching online tonight and you're not saved, can I just say to you that the end of this world is coming one day. That's not a fairy tale. That's not fiction. That is fact. Alright? By faith, I believe that the Bible is true. It's proven itself to be true over and over and over again. And one day there's going to be a rapture. And at the end of that rapture there's going to be a millennial or a thousand year reign of Christ. And then at the end of that reign there's going to be a judgment of those who rejected God in their lifetime and never put their faith and trust in Jesus to save them. And then this heaven and earth are going to be destroyed and a new heaven and earth are going to be brought in. And only those who in their lifetime between their birth date and their death date that put their faith and trust in Jesus will get to make it to the new heaven and new earth. And so if you haven't done that, remember what the Bible tells us. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. Uh, James uh, chapter 4 tells us, What is your life? It is even but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I stand at a stove and I watch uh, steam come up off of a pot. And as fast as it appears, it disappears. And in the grand scheme of eternity, not a uh, not hundred years, not a thousand years, not uh, ten thousand years, not a hundred thousand years, not a million years, not a hundred million years, not a hundred billion years, but for all of eternity, those who have professed Christ during that little vapor of their life, or those who believed in Jesus as their ticket to heaven, those who were uh, uh, converted into or became the sons of God through that act of belief, only those get to make it into God's heaven. Boy, don't shun what God's created. One day His voice from Sion will, will, will rattle and shake and burn this heaven and earth. 
and only the children of God, as far as beings and the angels in heaven who who uh, have survived um, uh, or who, who survived the rebellion, only those uh, will make it into heaven. Now, I was very careful to word it, the children of God, and here's why: my understanding of doctrine and study is. How do you define a child of God? All right, this is a neat little tidbit, a neat little nugget, okay? And there there are people that disagree with me on this. There are Baptists that disagree with me on this, and that's okay. But this has been uh, my observation and study of it. Uh, Only someone who was someone or something that was directly made by God is a child of God. Okay, I'll give you an example, all right? Adam. Adam and Eve were made by the hands of God. Adam is called the Son of God. All right? Um, how about the angels? The angels were made by the hands of God, and so they are called the sons of God. You may remember when Job, um, in the book of Job, where the Bible talks about the sons of God being called for a meeting, and Lucifer showed up. Why? Because he was directly made by God. Uh, how about, uh, let's see, how about John chapter 1 verse 12, where it says uh, that we become a son of God when we believe on his name. Why? Because God reaches down and he makes us a new creature. You see that? So to be a son of God, God has been directly involved in shaping you and making you. The children of God survive. Now, not the 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 not Satan and, and the third that were thrown out of heaven. Now, they won't because they are punished in the rebellion. But the rest of the children of God that are angels survive, and the redeemed in Christ uh, survive. Notice the other thing that survives: the destruction of the heaven and the earth is the Word of God. The Word of God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 35. Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 35. Everybody still with me tonight? All right, good. Matthew 24, look at verse number 35. The Bible says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. And by the way, those who try to excuse away 2 Peter 3, 10 through 14 and say, oh, it's not an actual fire. It's, it's metaphorically purifying the earth. Well, you've got to figure out then Matthew 24, 35 that says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. God's word will stand forever. You know, I like to make a point of application in the, the rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, tomorrow morning when you get up and read your Bible and pray, you spend time in this book right here, you know, you're spending time in something that is eternal. Facebook is not eternal. Twitter is not eternal. The United States of America in its election is not eternal. This is eternal. And, And I know I've been guilty of this in my life, but we get so distracted and caught up on things that are not eternal, and then that which is eternal sits on our nightstand or on our dresser or on the coffee table or kitchen table or gets left on the back seat of our car, and we never spend time in this, and we're wasting time on something that isn't eternal, and we're letting that pass which is eternal. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. One day, God will stand on Mount Sion, and with His voice, He will cause the heaven and earth to burn with a fervent heat. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is greater 
than Moses' kingdom. All right. One more thought here tonight, uh, and that is, um, uh, er, let's see, earthly kingdom. Sinai represents an earthly kingdom, and Sion represents a heavenly kingdom. And uh, this brings us full circle back to the title where we talk about Jesus' kingdom versus Moses' kingdom. All right, look at verse number 28 and 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. Let's finish up chapter 12 here. It says that, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. All right, we're going to turn over to... Uh, Revelation chapter 21 in just a moment. By the way, those of you watching at home, uh, this is a a last-minute edition. So these verses we'll read in Revelation 21 will not be on the screen. If you have a Bible nearby and you're watching at home, uh, you have a couple of minutes to get that and and be ready in Revelation 21. uh, And you'll need to read from an actual Bible there. But uh, while you're, you're, you're getting turned there and getting settled in Revelation 21, let me make a couple of uh, uh, introductory thoughts here. Earthly kingdom versus heavenly kingdom. There is a temptation in Christianity today to try to turn God into a coddling, uh, over-caring, benevolent mother who looks the other way at wrongdoing. And the wrath of God that we find in the Old Testament, people in the New Testament want to dismiss it away. They don't want to talk about the punishing hand of God. It's almost as though God it just pats someone on the head and says, well, you just be a good little boy and love me, and you show up to church on Sunday, and that's good enough. This is where we get a casual Christianity that is permeating America. Casual Christianity that permeates America. I preached Sunday night a very uh, scathing sermon in some aspects about the, the holiness that God has called Christians to. And we, we, we talk about grace and how that the, the consequences are not immediate. But please understand that God does chasten us. And his chastening is different in the New Testament than the Old Testament, but his chastening is real. Look back at verse number 29. And this is a phrase pulled out of the Old Testament law, out of the Torah. For our God is a consuming fire. What is, what is the author of Hebrews trying to say here? Hey, the nature of God does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was a consuming fire in the Old Testament... He is a consuming fire in the New Testament. Now, the methodology has changed, but who He is has not changed. And I just want to say this evening, don't cross God. Don't cross Him. Don't cross Him. Um, I had a teacher in school named Mrs. Drake. She only taught one year. I felt bad for Mrs. Drake. Uh, She was my... Let's see, ninth or 10th grade, I can't remember the year, but ninth or 10th grade science and math teacher. She went to school to be a teacher, but she did not, she, she was just not cut from the right cloth. And those poor kids in that school just ate her emotionally for lunch. And after one year of teaching uh, and just it not going well, she hung it up and, and, and switched careers. I felt awful for her, but I'll tell you what I watched with Mrs. Drake, uh, or Miss Drake, rather. I don't believe she was married. I, what I watched with Miss Drake 
was that the kids would push her buttons and push her buttons and push her buttons and push her buttons, and then she would snap. And when she snapped, boy, you wanted to crawl under the anything you could find because it would get ugly. And, you know, God is uh, measured, and God is careful, and God knows. But please understand that God's default is to be merciful and gracious and kind. And we trample on His grace and trample on His grace and trample on His grace, and God sends warning after warning after warning. At some point, He is a consuming fire, and He comes down hard on us, and we feel a severe punishment. I know that I've, there have been times in my life where I've been in a pattern of living in sin, and I thought, I'm getting away with it. I'm getting away with it. No one has ever seemed to find out, or uh, there are even people that maybe knew, and, and, and nothing seemed to happen. Can I tell you something? That God may not punish on the spot, but God eventually gets around to punishing. He is a consuming fire. And that fire one day will burn this sinful, wicked planet up with a fervent heat. And God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And here we get the heavenly kingdom that God's grace brings. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21 if you're not already there. Give me a moment, I'm going to get over there. We're almost done this evening. I want you to see what the end game of the heavenly kingdom is. Now, God's fire, that, that, that consuming fire, one more observation before you read. That consuming fire does two things. It punishes and it purifies. It punishes and it purifies. What do I mean? I mean sometimes God turns up the heat underneath us and it hurts. One day, though, God is going to turn up the heat under our works in heaven. He's going to cut out the wood, hay, and stubble, and all that will be left are gold, silver, and precious stones that are made pure. And we're going to walk into the kingdom of heaven. We're going to walk into the kingdom of grace, and we're not going to experience the brokenness of Sinai. We're going to experience the healing and eternality of Sion. Look at Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. By the way, I don't know how much more clear the Bible can be uh, that the old heaven and earth are going away. And, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down uh, from a God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he uh, will dwell with them, and they... Uh, shall be his people and God himself and be with them and be their God. I love verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things, Mount Sinai, the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne, Mount Sion, uh, 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 said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Amen. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth 
with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a reflection back to Revelation 20, 14 and 15. And there uh, came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven uh, uh, from God, having the glory of God. And her light was uh, like unto a stone most precious. That her light, by the way, speaking of the church, or rather the bride, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and uh, had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gate twelve angels and uh, names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates. Are you picturing this? On the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the twelve walls represent the Old Testament and the twelve foundations represent the New Testament. It's all being brought together. That law and that grace are being found completed together uh, there in this new Jerusalem. Uh, at verse number uh, 14, in the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So this new Jerusalem is cubed. And he measured the wall thereof in a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, all of this carrying significance. This is of the angel, and the building of the wall of it was as of jasper, and the city was pure gold, likened to clear glass, and the foundation of the wall of the city was garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third, and, and on down. Uh, skip down to verse number 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Uh, every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple uh, of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. For there shall uh, be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter in anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Boy, if you're ever having a bad day, just go read uh, Revelation chapter 21 and realize that is your future. As rough as it is today, as rough as it may be in your life, there may be a dark cloud of uh, disappointment and failure and frustration and fear and fragility that's hanging over your head. And you may uh, be walking around uh, with your shoulders stooped and feeling like things aren't going well. Please understand that this is waiting in your future if your name is in that book. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Mount Sinai brought us the law, and that law did nothing but point at us and show us how short we come. Mount Sion brings us grace and brings us this new heaven and earth and this heavenly kingdom. Christian, don't be disheartened. 
Don't be disheartened by what's going on in the world. Don't be disheartened what's going on in your world. Put your eyes on Jesus and know that one day all of this will just be a distant memory. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. I hope Hebrews 12 was an encouragement to you as we have paralleled Mount Sinai, Moses' kingdom, with Mount Sion, our Lord and Savior Jesus' kingdom. And next week we'll begin, or rather in two weeks, we'll begin chapter number 13, the final chapter in Hebrews, and looking forward to that with you. Let's be dismissed with a word of prayer this evening and ask God's hand of blessing on us and pray He brings us back safely next Sunday. Brother Reggie Nito, if you would, close us in prayer.